If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into nerds' gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds' gummy clusters, a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Bell one time on Friday. Separate participating McDonald's through 1231-24. Excludes tax. Must update to rewards. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Welcome to our new four-part mini-series, in which we'll be looking back at festive food from down the ages. From the fairly revolting to the downright delicious and sadly forgotten dishes that have graced our Christmas tables over the centuries. I'm joined in this culinary adventure by Annie Gray, food historian and the author of At Christmas We Feast, Festive Food Through the Ages. In today's episode, Annie guides us through festive feasting in the Victorian era. From turkey and trifle to creepy greetings cards and booze-soaked tipsy cakes. So now we have reached the Victorian era. The Victorians are often credited with inventing Christmas, so I'm excited about this. And we can talk about whether that's true or not. But before we do, what sums up Christmas spirit in the Victorian age? Charity, I think, or the the idea of charity, um, I would say. It's everywhere. It's not necessarily adhered to, but there is an idea that Christmas is a time when you think of those less fortunate than yourselves. And that is quite integral, certainly to the early Victorian Christmas. I would say it is slightly less integral to the late Victorian Christmas, which becomes more about a real family focus. But I would go with charity and family. So a lot of people will think of Christmas and they will think of Christmas Carol, they'll think of Charles Dickens, (laughs) Christmas trees, all these things which 
We credit the Victorians with a lot to do with Christmas. Is that fair? No. Uh, Well, not the inventions. It is fair to credit them with popularising Christmas and making the modern Christmas that we have today. But a lot of that is about the way in which we think of Christmas rather than the practical stuff. So to take, for example, the Christmas tree, the Victorians are responsible for it in that I don't think we, well, we probably would have them otherwise because you can't really tell. But they did not invent them. They did not introduce them. So there was a, a Christmas trees were at uh, Kew Palace and were within the royal family before the um, Victorian period because they were a German tradition. And in Germany, the idea of a tree at Christmas goes back a very long way. Uh, I mean, in Britain, we had the Yule log where we would bring in a log and we would set fire to it. But again, that's, we may, we may have done it. We may not have done it, actually. But with trees, we know that there was one at Kew in, I think, 1808. We know that Queen Victoria had one growing up as a princess. There's rumours that German governesses had trees as well. German shopkeepers would have trees. So it, they were known. But what happened is that Queen Victoria loved her tree. And this was an era where um, sort of mass media was really taking off even more than it had done. And there was a kind of ferocious interest, especially in Queen Victoria. She really was this kind of media icon. And she and Albert knew how to use that. And they they did use it. They were very, very good at using the media. And the, the kind of crux point, I suppose, with Christmas tree came in 1848 with the publication of a picture of them in the Illustrated London News around their tree, surrounded by their children. I mean, it's a total lie. You know, her mother was there who she hated. The kids were there who she didn't really like most of the time. Albert was a git most of the time. So, but it was a kind of in the vein of those really st- stylized Christmas photographs we get sent from people today where you look at them and think, oh, really? Really? And that was not what she was saying about him um, or whatever it was. And that picture of the tree... It's a fake tree as well. Very, I mean, the branches are very uniform. There are kind of shelves on that tree. But it, it did go viral, really. And, and it kind of met a sweep, a change in the zeitgeist, which was all about changing Christmas and putting a different emphasis on Christmas. And so that picture of that tree and the idea of trees hit this desire to reinvent Christmas. And the whole thing went mad. And within a decade, really, the 1850s went from no tree to universal trees and it, it was it's insane how quickly that worked and you really can see where it comes from in that period more than any other so they didn't invent the tree they didn't introduce the tree but there's definitely a popularization of the tree and the same is true of, of pretty much everything else that we can we try to associate with the victorians as well and you said earlier that in the victorian era christmas was increasingly promoted as a as a family focused a family friendly event so what did that mean in terms of celebrations was it the death knell for the trendy dinner parties that we saw in the georgian era Oh, goodness, no. You still wanted a trendy dinner party. The children would be in bed by eight (laughs) o'clock. That's what nurseries are for. Um, It differed by class a lot. So if you were upper class, you still wanted to hold big dinner parties and a lot of your Christmas celebrations were still staged around large-scale meals. So the Christmas meal at this point is being held on Christmas Day. Uh, 8, 8.30 in the evening. For the, in the early period, it's very much like the Georgian meals, lots of things on the table at once. By the end of the period, we've moved to successional service, a la Russe. So by then the meal has changed a little bit. But it's still a show-off time. It's still when you have your friends over, your family. And it might well be a big occasion as well still. If you're at that level of society, it's not really a nuclear family scenario. Slightly lower down the social scale, so you're talking sort of middle class, um, it is much more focused on family. And at that point, certainly towards the end of the Victorian era, you may well have your children with you. Uh, you've still got, if you're middle class, you'll still have a nurse, you'll still have a nanny or, or a nursemaid, but the children will be more involved than they had been. Uh, and when you go down to a working class level, again, you've got this kind of, certainly by the end of the era, there is this excitement about Christmas and this excitement about joining in. 
A lot of that, it's got to be said, is because of the growth of things like Christmas presents, uh, the introduction of Father Christmas as a sort of iconic figure towards the end of the era, and this idea that if you're a child, you can go and stare into shop windows and you can sort of, you know, it's going to be really cool, you're going to get stuff. So it is an era where Christmas as a concept that can be attached to things really just explodes. So this is the era where we get Christmas pudding as opposed to plum pudding, Christmas cake as opposed to 12th cake, Christmas dinner, and also where some of the foods that previously were associated more widely with the season, such as turkey, become almost exclusive to Christmas. It is not that your Christmas dinner will always include turkey. It is that you will only eat turkey at Christmas. Ah, I don't mean to dampen the festive spirits, but you do have an amazingly cynical quote in your book from George (laughs) Bernard Shaw. I wonder if you could share that with us because it did just make me laugh. Yeah, I think one of the things I'm always keen to emphasise with Christmas is that it is not always a happy period of time for people. And today, of course, there are many people who are on their own or who have horrible domestic lives and for whom Christmas is a period of real dread, actually. And also that there are lots of people who just hate Christmas and they don't actually have a reason. They just hate Christmas. And there are loads of reasons for hating Christmas. And there have been many Christmas haters in the past. So if you are a Christmas hater or even if you're just a Christmas slight disliker or if you like to pretend you hate Christmas because it annoys your family, which I suspect is more to the point then this is probably for you. So I'll I'll read the paragraph. Despite the general fervour, there were dissenting voices. George Bernard Shaw, ever a cheery soul, fulminated regularly on the subject. We must be gluttonous because it is Christmas. We must be drunken because it is Christmas. We must be insincerely generous. We must buy things that nobody wants and give them to people we don't like. We must go to absurd entertainments that make even our little children satirical. We must writhe under venal officiousness from legions of freebooters, all because it is Christmas. That is, because the mass of the population, including the all-powerful middle-class tradesmen, depend on a week of licence and brigandage, waste and intemperance to clear off its outstanding liabilities at the end of the year. Probably quite a few listeners might recognise that voice of um, George Bernard Shaw. I mean, he's not hes not entirely wrong, is he? He does have a point that a lot of shopkeepers do make most of their profits in the weeks leading up to Christmas. He would have hated the Black Friday sales. Oh, do you know what? I hate the Black Friday sales. Those really <laughs> are made up. But I think in terms of a wider point, actually, for those shops, and I'm thinking sort of booksellers and, and, and chocolatiers and things like that, who do look at Christmas as, a, as, a, as part of their business plan, we should be celebrating that and we should actually be spending our money because, do you know what, otherwise we lose them. So before we turn to the matter at hand of Christmas food, there's one final thing that I just wanted to give a shout out to of Victorian Christmases, which is the introduction of Christmas cards, because Victorian <laughs> Christmas cards are amazingly weird, aren't they? Oh, they're fantastic. I've used a Victorian Christmas card as the front cover of the book because how could you not fall in love with a plum pudding with a knife sticking out of it and then children, like, buried in it? I mean, it's it's unutterably weird. I love Victorian Christmas cards. They first introduced in the 1840s and flopped. And actually, the first Christmas card, which is by Henry Cole, um, shows a family gathered around a table with all of the children drinking alcohol. So it really does show in which the way in which you know children are welcome at Christmas and booze was fed to children. Uh, but there's scenes of charitable giving on either side as well, just safely out of the home. Um, but they sort of they didn't really do very well in the 1840s, but they kind of rumbled on and then took off 
a lot really in the 60s and 70s, 1860s and 1870s. And then the Christmas post gets mentioned for the first time around then as well. But those early Victorian Christmas cards are so worth seeking out. And uh, they're so worth, I mean, honestly, every year I'm like, why has nobody reprinted these? I would have these. There's One of my favourites is two robins getting drunk on punch. And one of them has fallen over with its feet sticking up in the air. And there's a cat in the background coming to eat them. You've got oysters waving off their friends. And you've got kind of scarab beetles dancing with each other. There's even one which has got like people dressed up as rats. And it's, I mean, honestly, toasting a rat over a fire. The Mary Evans Picture Library has got some really good examples of these. So if anybody does want to look for them, I would say just, I mean, knock yourselves out. Honestly, you will get lost in the wonderful world of Victorian Christmas cards. And then... I'm afraid to say that a holly wreath or you know some vaguely non-denominational kind of Robin-y style thing in the snow or a picture of your local town with some fake photoshopped snow on will not cut the mustard. You'll be like, where are the bugs? Where's the cannibalism? Where are the completely inappropriate messages going on with legs and a top hat on my Christmas card? Yeah, my own favourite it has a man being wrestled to death by a polar bear on it, which is nothing says Christmas spirit like that. I think there's a lot there's a lot of death in Victorian Christmas cards a lot of death and uh, but you know what bring it on because it raises a smile mm. so let's turn to food now what elements of the Victorian Christmas dinner would we recognize today would recognize a lot of them so again if you look at the wealthy people's Christmas dinner you have nearly all of the elements that we have today It's just they're not on their own. So meals were still a lot bigger if you were wealthy, partly because you tended to have a lot more people and partly because meals just were bigger. By the end of the era, you have sequential service. So you've got your soup, then your fish, then your main course, then your entrees, and you've got nine courses being brought to you. But in those courses, you will almost certainly have turkey, boiled, usually with celery sauce. You will still probably have beef. Certainly there will be a roast. You may have potatoes, you probably won't. Mince pies will certainly feature. Christmas pudding will be named as such. It was first named by Elizabeth Hammond uh, and then Eliza Acton followed suit in 1845. So Christmas pudding. Plum pudding still exists and you, you do get both in books and plum pudding is still eaten throughout the winter season, but you still you now have Christmas pudding. Uh, you will, by the end of the year, have Christmas cake. Twelfth cake dwindles throughout this period until really only Queen Victoria is still having it. And so it sort of becomes the Christmas cake. So you will see elements that are very, very familiar to us today. You will still also have ice cream. You may still also have jellies. You will, you might have eclairs, things like that. But certainly turkeys, often with sausages and things like that, will appear. If you are poorer, you will have poultry still, but you'll probably have a goose. And again, this is familiar today, although today goose is a really upmarket thing to have and there's not a lot of meat on it, whereas back in the past, goose was the cheap option. So goose was very popular for those who were poorer. And you've also got things appearing like sprouts. So sprouts come in in about 1830, so you may well have sprouts on your table. They're not obligatory. The range of foods eaten at Christmas is still very large, but there will be certain things. Mrs Beaton talks about a turkey being virtually obligatory for the middle classes, although Nen doesn't actually put turkey on all of her menus. But um, there is certainly a feeling that there are dishes that we would recognise. Still to come on the History Extra podcast hundreds of turkeys on sticks hanging up all over the walls the roof the windows then you'd have whole pigs whole lambs venison game i mean just you couldn't see the butcher shops for all of the meat hanging up outside still in the case of turkeys with their feathers on as well so that you would pluck them in home 
We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So do we know how it went from um, the ubiquitous beef and plum pudding to turkey being the mainstay? Turkey wasn't yet completely the mainstay, I should just point out. Turkey wasn't universal really until after the war, partly because people didn't have ovens big enough to put turkey in, <laughs> I mean, just as a purely practical thing. Um, turkey was popular when it first arrived because it was quite nice tasting and it was easy to prepare and it looked quite cool. You know, it, if you think about what a turkey looks like with its feathers pretty funky. So one of the popular ways to present it in the Tudor era was to take the tail off, the wings off, and the head off with a bit of the sort of plumage from the breast, make the meat into a pie, and then put the head, wings, and tail on skewers back into the pie. So they would stick up and it would look like a sort of turkey with a pastry body. Kind of cool. Um, And then gradually, as time went on, it became much more likely to be boiled. Uh, Celery, as I say, is one of the really popular ways to do it, or possibly roasted for some people. But roast turkey kind of certainly for the victorians roast turkey it, it, it was sometimes there but roast game was still much more prestigious if you were wealthy because it showed you could get access to game and game was it was just more prestigious but i think it, it had two things going for it one thing was the fact that it tasted genuinely nice much nicer than modern most modern turkeys because um well it's like, it's like most modern chicken tastes pretty awful let's face it there's no flavor so uh, a turkey tasted really good it burnished up nicely it had that skin that was really crispy i mean yeah, a good roast turkey is an amazing thing, let's face it. It fed quite a lot of people as well. So the other thing it had going for it was the fact that it was big and spectacular. And a big piece of meat on the table in an era where the majority of people couldn't afford meat still. But that said, you know, 
this is Christmas, this is hospitality. So the fact that it was big and the fact that it fed a lot of people was a really good thing in its favour as well, because all the other big birds tasted terrible. I mean, yeah, swan's fine, but I mean, goodness sake, it's expensive. You've got to get them on their signet. You've got to feed them up. You've got to buy them from your specialist swan supplier. You know, they're not easy to get hold of. They're quite tough, apparently. I haven't eaten it, but I know people who have. Swan's just not on a par with a turkey, which you can farm properly, feed up. And by the end of the era, turkeys were huge at Christmas, mainly produced in Norfolk. And there were tales of, first of all, stage, well, flocks of turkeys in the late Georgian period, then stagecoaches and then trains, just chock-a-block full of turkeys speeding down to London for the Christmas market. And there are pictures as well of these stagecoaches. And, of course, butcher's shops hung. I mean, a butcher's shop at Christmas in the Victorian era, hundreds of turkeys on sticks hanging up all over the walls, the roof, the windows. Then you'd have whole pigs, whole lambs, venison, game. I mean, just, you couldn't see the butcher shops for all of the meat hanging up outside, still in the case of turkeys with their feathers on as well, so that you would pluck them in home. So it, it was a genuinely sort of phenomenal meat and it, it really took off in the Victorian era. And what kind of elements might we not recognise today? You've mentioned a couple of times celery sauce, which I don't think most people are having on their Christmas dinners <laughs> at the moment. No, we tend to roast our turkeys now because we now still have a roast, but it, it tends to be the same as the meat. So the turkey and the roast are the same thing. Whereas if you were wealthy in the Victorian era, you'd have so many different types of meat that it, it really wasn't. And because turkey was farmed, it lacked the prestige of a wild meat, such as pheasant or woodcock or snipe or lark. So you would tend to boil it or poach it more correctly. Uh, and the celery sauce was just what you would do with it. I mean, celery and turkey, they do go quite nicely together. So is that is that a water, a creamy sauce or a watery sauce? I think it's, I mean, it's, it's pretty much the usual. It's melted butter sauce with celery chopped into it. The British did lag behind with sauces, it's fair to say. Uh, I mean, the other elements that we would find slightly strange are the, again, there's a lot of variety around those things. And the roast potato had nowhere near achieved the kind of preeminence that it... I mean, today it is the single most common dish on a Christmas table because, of course, it's it's vegetarian and vegan and therefore it can appear on everybody's table and it's a pretty sort of... It's not really a very controversial vegetable, really. So, um, or at least not in its modern context. You still have a lot of exotica on the table in terms of vegetables. You would also, your mince pies still had meat in really until the 1890s, little bit of meat, not very much anymore. Um, and you would still have a lot more things going on than we would imagine. Um, and also nobody really had brandy butter at that point, which is a good thing, obviously, because brandy butter is terrible. Uh, you would normally have your Christmas pudding with cream or wine sauce or custard. Brandy butter is a cold lump of, of nastiness. Right? <laughs> custard is a glorious, eggy, vanillary, soft pillow of beauty. What is the Victorian recipe then that you're going to champion for us? So for the Victorian era, I'm going for tipsy cake, which in my mind is quite controversial because I hate trifle. It's sort of my kind of undying dislikes. I think because I suffer from childhood trauma, both my grandparents used to cook trifle or make trifle, I should say. And it was the kind of classic 1970s, 1980s style sort of bought sponge cake horrible fortified wine from the bargain basement at the back end of the co-op or other supermarket and just tinned fruit and I mean it just you build it up the whole thing texturally it was 
horrific and I really, really hate soggy cake. So with that build up, I wasn't going to talk about trifle in the book. And then everybody I know went, you have to talk about trifle. Trifle is a huge part of Christmas for people. Trifle says Christmas. And I was like, no, no, no. Trifles for all year round for those people who like it. And there was a fight and I lost um, because polls that I did on Twitter, I had a brilliant sort of time polling people on Twitter for sort of things like that, uh, all suggested that actually I was a real minority here. So I thought, okay, I'll put a savoury trifle in just some really good lobster trifles. And I was like, that's a gratin though, isn't it? <laughs> it's not really a trifle. So like, do you know what? If I'm going to go for it, I'm going to really go for it. Let's go for the ultimate trifle, uh, which is tipsy cake. And if you're going to do tipsy cake, it's really, really, it's ideally suited for someone who has a Savoy cake mould, but nobody in their right mind has a Savoy cake mould. They're the sort of fluted moulds that you get, which has a flat top. But you can... I think it looks best if you do it in a mould, but you could use like a Savaran mould or, you know, anything that's got a bit of fanciness to it. But equally, you could just do this in a cake tin um, because by the time you eat it, you're not going to care anymore. Uh, so you make a fatless sponge, basic fatless sponge. You can put almonds in it if you want to. You don't have to, but you make this fatless sponge and then you let it go stale for a couple of days. So this is ideal if you're making a sponge cake anyway. So far, so fine, it's sponge cake. And then you soak it in a mixture of brandy and white wine. Uh, we had a lot of experimentation to get exactly the right proportion of brandy and white wine. I was drinking a lot of mixtures of brandy and white wine for a week, and I have to say it was an interesting week. Uh, so you, you sort of pierce the cake and you soak it in brandy and white wine. So it becomes soggy cake, but not sort of falling apart soggy cake, just cake imbibed with booze. Uh, and then if you're sort of early Victorian, all you do is pour a custard sauce around it and prick it with almonds. So you decorate it with almonds so it looks like a porcupine and custard. And that's the plain, easy tipsy cake version. But there's no point really in doing that because I think if you're a trifle person, one of the things you like is the visuals of a trifle and the, the, the sort of decorative potential. So I took a leaf out of a man called Theodore Garrett's book and I went very over the top when I suggested decorating it. And when I made it, and it did look spectacular, I have to say, I went for sort of Angelica Spears sticking out of it and glacé fruit piled around it. You've got to have your almonds. Um, they look fantastic in it. But So it starts to look like a kind of weird Sputnik um, and also you can take uh, various jams and you can sort of decorate it with those or strips of sort of, you know, the jelly style jam, the jam without bits in. Um, you can add whipped cream, uh, ratifia biscuits. They're a bit good as well. You know, I mean, if you can think of it, then you might as well put it on and decorate it. And by the time you've done all of that, you can't really see the cake anymore. If you've done it in a Savoy cake mould, you do have a lot of height, which is really, really good. Um, if you've just done it as a normal cake, by this point, you know, frankly, it should look like a sort of garland of fruit and nuts. And and then when you eat it, it's, um, it's like trifle in its purest form, in that it is cake soaked with booze with whatever you've put with it. So it's kind of like deconstructed trifle. It was absolutely iconic in the Victorian era to have tipsy cake. And it's another one of those dishes which we just do not eat anymore at all. It sounds absolutely fantastic to me. It's pretty good. It's pretty, I mean, I, you know, there's a bit of effort involved and it's probably not a Christmas Day dish anymore because of the level of effort. You don't need extra hassle on Christmas Day. But I would say it's a kind of quite a good New Year's Eve dish possibly because of the booze, the cake, the rest of it. Fantastic. And finally... Um, I will ask you if you can take one element of the Victorian Christmas with you um, to 2021, what are you going to pick? I'd go early Victorian and I would have 12th cake, 
which is sort of cheating because it's also very Georgian, but I'm not a huge fan of the Victorian Christmas. So I would take the 12th cake and I would take Queen Victoria's 12th cake from, well, from throughout her reign. She had incredible 12th cakes, which were sort of, had kind of scenes on top of people picnicking and playing musical instruments and stuff. So I would end my Christmas with a 12th night celebration while knowing that a lack, it was the Victorians that did for it. So it would be uh, an 1840s, bit of Victoriana. Why are you not that into Victorian Christmas? I think partly because I've been Victorian at Christmas so many times when I used to work in costume and it's one of those faux nostalgia things. There's there's so much concentration on the Victorians inventing Christmas and the Victorians having a Christmas which was very homogenous and it wasn't. I mean the Victorians did this themselves so for the Victorians they reinvented the Tudor period as this period of ye olde hospitality and they also rewrote the Georgian period as one of sort of charitable giving and and kind of you know cutesy old men with red cheeks um, and big fires and they all claimed that in the 1840s this is people were claiming that we'd forgotten what Christmas was Uh, and it wasn't quite true because we never had entirely and Christmas changes and it should change. So I think my beef with the Victorians is partly they invented a Christmas and then tried to codify it. And I don't think codifying anything or making it rigid is very useful, especially not when it's a huge social ritual like Christmas, which is so varied or should be. And my second problem with it is this idea today that we revere the Victorians for having some form of proper Christmas, when actually the way in which it was celebrated was so different between classes, between individuals, between households, and where urban and rural poverty was still a huge, huge issue and where people were literally starving. So the idea that we look upon the Victorians as cosy, and I think, you know, it's every every costume drama going, isn't it? It always snows at Christmas in the Victorian period. Um, And so I just, part of me just goes, for goodness sake, it's all an oversimplification. Give me the Georgians. I might be a bit of a George Bernard Shaw. (laughs) (laughs) That was Annie Gray. Her book, At Christmas We Feast, Festive Food from Down the Ages, is available now, published by Profile. Annie also wrote a feature on historical Christmas feasts for the Christmas issue of BBC History magazine, and that is on sale now. Next Saturday, we'll be back with more Christmas feasting, as Annie and I look at Christmas food from the 20th century. From suspect dishes made under World War II rationing to joyful post-war creations coated in piped green mayonnaise. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.